First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Let's pray together as we come before the Lord this day. Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. We thank you that your Holy Spirit guides us into truth. And as we have time together in your word this day, would that ministry be carried out so that each of us would come to understand more completely the things you've said, not just to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives. Plug your truth into us, that we would recognize how it's applying to our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, and give us the enablement as we step out in obedience to the things that you say. Well, thank you ahead of time for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been examining together the issue of living as a sojourner exile in the midst of a fallen world. We've seen in this portion of 1 Peter that it's necessary to actually see ourselves as sojourners and exiles. If we see ourselves accurately, we tend to then act in a way that's linked to how we see ourselves. If we don't see ourselves accurately, then we set, the, we set ourselves up basically to end up outside of the place that God is really wanting us to be. We've talked about the word sojourner, which translates Peripedimos in the Greek, which is referring to someone living in a foreign land over against somebody who is visiting a foreign land. So a sojourner is one who's living in that foreign land rather than just a tourist there. And God uses that word to describe us as believers, as redeemed people. And he says, listen, you're a sojourner in a foreign land. You're living there. You're not just visiting. You're not just uh, here for a week unless I should choose to take you, but that's a separate issue. Uh, you're, you're here to live in this foreign land, a land that may at one time not have been foreign to you, but all lands are foreign to you now if you've come to know Christ as Savior, because you're now part of a different kingdom altogether. So he said, first of all, see yourself as a sojourner. Secondly, he says, see yourself as an exile. That's the way it's translated in the ESV. That uh, translates the word poiokos, which means to... It distinguishes between someone who is in a foreign land who is living in close proximity to people in that foreign land to distinguish from somebody who's living in a foreign land who's off in their own sort of region, maybe their own sort of ghettoized area or off in their own community. And he says, this is the way you are to see yourselves. You're, you're, not, you're here to live in a foreign land. You're in a foreign land. And I want you close to the people in the foreign land. I don't want you living off in your own areas. Uh, God has lots of reasons for that, of course, uh, in terms of our witness, light in the darkness, and so forth. But uh, I think that second piece is really important for us because all of us have had that feeling sometimes, like I just like to get away from the fallen world around me. And, and wouldn't it be nice maybe to live in a Christian commune or something? Uh, and, and, of course, God says, well, 
Whether it's nice or not, that's not the option I gave you. You know, you're, you are in this world as sojourners and exiles. And knowing that we're a sojourner and exile is supposed to affect our behavior. God says, I placed you here and I placed you in close proximity to these people. And I want you to live differently than that prevailing culture in which I've placed you. I've called you to live in it, but I've not called for you to fit in it. Uh, and of course, that's Romans 12:2 uh, that we're called upon not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. And so, what does it mean to be transformed? Well, there's a lot of things that that means, but last week we were talking in verses 11 and 12 about two of the culture contrasts that God is expecting from his sojourner exiles living in the midst of the world. The first of those was that we would be a people who abstain from the passions of the flesh. We would be a a people not driven by what drives everybody else. Uh, The flesh, he tells us, is at war with the spirit. So he doesn't want us living that way. And he's by implication saying to us, the world, the foreign land that we placed ourselves in, is a land driven by the passions of the flesh. How those passions show up in different people varies. But nonetheless, what the driving motivation is, is satisfaction of one's passions and drives. The second thing he said is, I want you to be someone living here and showing a culture contrast because your orientation to life is to have honorable conduct and good deeds. Now, as I'm not just interested that as a sojourner exile that you don't, that you abstain from the passions of the flesh, I want you to do that. But I'm interested that you put on the positive as well. I want you actually going beyond that to do the honorable things and the good deeds. We're putting off the flesh, but we're putting on the new man in Christ, as Ephesians 4 picks up the put-off, put-on concept a bit more. Uh, Colossians does as well. Now today, we encounter, beginning in verse 13, a third of these culture contrasts, those things that God wants to be true of us as sojourner exiles that will, in a way, make us light in the darkness. We will truly be standing out, in a way, against the crowd. And basically what he's saying in these verses 13 to 17 is this. I want you to have a very different attitude and response to authority than the unredeemed people that you're living in close proximity to. I want you to have a very different view of authority. In fact, he goes and he says, I want you to be subject to authority in various settings. In the verses ahead, we'll discover authority structures existing governmentally, authority structures existing in the work context. We get into the beginning of the third chapter, authority structure existing in the home context. So there's a variety of authority structures that he's turning our attention to here. But he's beginning by talking, of course, about the issue within the context of government structure. And he says, I want you to have this very different culture contrast response. I want you to be a person subject to authority in that civil and work organization context. And it will be a dramatic contrast because essentially unredeemed humanity is rebellious to authority as a given. That is fundamental to the human condition. It's fundamental to what it means to be fallen. 
No one needs to argue that very far because you don't have to watch little kids very long as they start to develop before you find within them an inclination to be rebellious against authority. I don't know if you've discovered that. Maybe you've not seen that in your kids. I don't know. But the, but the reality is it's there. It's not like... You, you just have to observe, and that's all that's going on here. He's saying, listen, observe the condition. And the fact is, this basic sort of abrasiveness to authority, resistance to authority, that you see in kids, doesn't go away. It just gets more sophisticated, that's all. So as people get older, no longer kids, get to be an adults, you still find that fundamental underlying resistance, rebelliousness to authority. By the way, that's why you have police forces and why you have armies on an international scale. Uh, It's because of that very reality. People are rebellious and sinners. So let's look at this a bit more and, and get into the details of it. He begins with the command itself. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or governors, etc., etc., The command begins this way. As sojourners and exiles, remember we don't have any choice about being that. That's who we are. We can rebel against it, but that's who God says we are. We are commanded to be subject to governing authorities. This word subject or be subject is the Greek word hupotasso, made up of two words. Hupo in the Greek means to be under something. Uh, Tasso in the Greek means an arrangement, under an arrangement. And it's always referring to structures. The most uh, dominant use of the word hupotasso, by the way, in the Greek language, especially at the time of Koine Greek when the scripture was being written, it was a military term. Now that should ring a bell with you because you understand military operates within an authority structure. I mean, to be operating and obeying the line of authority, the line of orders, is that central to it. The whole military falls apart if that's not happening. And so that's the meaning of the word here, uh, being willing to be in the place you're in. I mean, to be under the authority, uh, to follow the orders in the ranks. Hupitasso be subject. A willing obedience and compliance. An adapting and also, depending on the context, it can mean adapting as well to what others are wanting. The bottom line of this command to be subject is this. God says, I don't want you to have to be coerced to obey. I don't want you to have to be coerced to obey. Why? Because basically the world has to be coerced to obey. That's, that's what drives it. Uh, and he says, I want you to be a people who don't have to be coerced. You know, I want you to be a people living in the foreign land, in close proximity to everything that's going on. I want you to be a people who stand out because you don't have to be coerced to obey. And secondly, I want you to stand out because... You're demonstrating by your approach to it that you accept the legitimacy of the civil authority that's there. Now, whether we like what they're doing or whether they're pleasing God with it, that's a whole other question. But God is getting beyond that question right now. And he's saying, what's the orientation 
of your life as a sojourner, as an exile. And he says, I want you to be submissive subject. And he says, to every. That's not a mistake translation here. Basically what he's saying, there's no exceptions here. As an orientation, this is how I want you to be. It doesn't matter what country you found yourself in. It doesn't matter what era of history you find yourself in. Uh, this is how I want your orientation to be. Now, as I said earlier, the world around us, the unregenerate world, those who haven't found Christ as Savior, they respond to authority in a very different way. Uh, in most cultures and in most settings, obedience has to be coerced. That's, that's how you do it. And the fact of the matter is, from really... I may have, been li- may have been living in a strange group, but from my earliest recollections and then all through my, t- my growing up years, teen years, getting away in a work world and all that, my experience has been most people tend to be disrespectful, bitter, hostile toward authority. I mean, that's, that's, all they, that's the settled position they're in from the start. And uh, maybe more so toward certain authority than other. I mean, that, that, can, that can be true. But if you're getting down and saying, well, what's your basic orientation? My basic orientation is to be bitter that I'm under authority, hostile to the authority. I have, I'm not going to do what they say to do unless they really have some sort of coercion structure here so that I'll do it. That's where humanity is. True of adults, true of kids. That's the picture. And so what the, con- the culture contrast developing here is a light versus darkness kind of contrast. Can you see it? Just as in the previous two, the abstaining from the passions of the flesh being driven by some other different motivational structure or doing honorable deeds and good deeds and your conduct being that way, these are very dramatic light versus darkness things. And God says, listen, I, I have called for you as my people redeemed to have this very distinctive attitude toward authority structure. And I can guarantee you, if that's true of you, you will stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, that, will, that is not the normative picture of where people are. Building on that, then he moves ahead and he says, listen, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperors, the supreme governors are sent by him to punish, and those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Be subject to them for the Lord's sake. The key distinctive of the believer's submission isn't only that they're submissive. I mean, that's distinctive. But the key distinctive of the believer's submission is that they have a different motivation in it. They are submissive because they are ultimately doing something for the Lord's sake, not the sake of the person in the authority structure, whatever that authority structure might be. We choose to be subject for God's sake not for the sake of the person that we end up being subject to. Now, what that practically means is this, that uh, to obey the command to submit to civil authority means I've got to get my eyes off the people in the civil authority position, ultimately 
Not that I can't see them, but I've got to look beyond them. Let's put it that way. I've got to look beyond the person in that position, look behind the position, and look at God. I've got to see him. Now, why does God say that? Because here's the given. God has a lot of reasons, of course, but here's the given, I think, underlying all of the reasons is this. Every leader, every authority that exists is filled by people who are fallen and frail to some degree. I mean, if, if the reason that we would be carrying out Hupatasso to be subject would be because we see somebody worthy of it out there, what that'll do is get us off the hook to have or have to be submissive because ultimately the more you know about people, the less worthy they seem to be. Uh, the more you know the behind-the-scenes sort of things and you begin to think, well, I don't know. Uh, and God says, listen, there aren't going to be any exemplars out there. The exemplars already come, the Lord Jesus. He's, you know, that's, that's different. Uh, there, there are no exemplars ultimately. Oh, some are better than others. That, don't get me wrong. But there's no exemplars. So get your eyes on Jesus. That's why you're doing this. Look at the Lord. For the Lord's sake, that's why you're being submissive. To submit to civil authority means I have to focus my eyes on Christ. And in refocusing on Christ, I'm reminding myself, well, gosh, I, there's a higher authority than the authority to whom I'm showing submission. There's a higher authority structure in the world and in the life as I find it than that individual. An, an authority structure above all human authority structures. Now, what does God mean here when he's using this term, human institutions? That's the way it's translated in the ESV. And the New International Version says, every authority instituted among men. The King James Version, if you happen to be using that, translates it, every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake. So what are we talking about? This human institutions is a combination of two different words in the Greek, obviously. But it's, it's talking about authority structures within humanity's structures. Within the setting of the civil structure, the corporate structure, and we'll come to see the home structure. There are, there's an authority frame within those structures. It's true at all levels of government. It's true at all levels of work, for that matter. Uh, true in the marriage. Authority structures, that thing that holds society together, in contrast, as we'll come to see, to anarchy, which will happen outside of structure. Uh, it's interesting to me, for a long time, people were seen as sort of... Uh, it was, it was true at different times in history, but particularly in the transition times of the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, people would, you know, proudly say, well, I'm, you know, what are you? I'm an anarchist, you know. I, I tear it all down, you know. Let it all, all of the, you know. And, and the truth of the matter is, uh, anarchy is disaster. And God will come to show us why that's a disaster. And uh, so he says, listen... I want you to be submissive to the structures that keep anarchy away, both on the civil level and, as we'll see, in the work context and the family context. There's a way to keep anarchy at bay. He then tells us something about these structures. 
He says, these structures are there because I put them there. Think of Romans chapter 13 in this regard. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Let every person be subject, same word, hupotasso, to the governing authority. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Same concept, of course, that we're talking about here. Uh, True of all levels. True of civil, corporate, kings, rulers, leaders of any sort. Here's the point. God's not always pleased with the way people in authority structures act. He's not always pleased with their decisions. But he still uses them. And the question has to come up to somebody who's thinking about it. So why does God, why does God use such a frail authority structure? Why does, why does he in some way use these very frailties in, of humanity, the fact none of them are going to be who they should be, how, why does he use that? And the answer to that, and I'm going to give you both a biblical answer and a theological answer, is what the theologian refers to as common grace. It is a measure of common grace from God that these authority structures are in place. God uses them in different contexts to hold sinful flesh in check. Remember, the nature of the fallen world is they have to be coerced to obey. There has to be a structure in place there. Romans 13 goes on in verses 3 and 4 to say, The rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of somebody in authority? Then do good. You'll receive approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He uses the terminology of sword, you see it. Uh, God holds sinful flesh in check to a little bit anyway. Not perfectly, because they're imperfect people. But it's a temporary way that God instituted to help prevent disastrous outcomes of basically sinful people. Now, why would he do that? Because the Bible goes to very detailed lengths to explain to us what happens when no authority structure exists. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, do exactly that. Genesis 4, we encounter sin enter. Well, Genesis 3, sin enters the world, Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. The first family, Genesis 4, and then we see sin rearing its ugly head, leading to the murder of Abel. And you begin to see sinful degeneration occurring. By the time you get to Genesis 6, this is the statement that God gives about humanity, beginning in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled, and by the way, it means filled to saturation. It was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way. All flesh had. And God said to Noah, I'm determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them on the earth. 
The reality was, immediately, in the absence of any civil structure, and there was no civil structure until after the flood, by the way, that was instituted following the flood by God. But prior to that time, with no civil structure, what you had was growing expressions of violence and anarchy within fallen humanity. In Genesis chapter 4, moving on from the sin of, Ab- of uh, Cain toward Abel, we get a couple generations out from Cain and we start talking about Lamech. And Lamech, that we see in Genesis chapter 4, makes this statement, this person who, this young man who wounded me, I killed him. And I'm going to be avenged 75, or 70 times, 70 times, 70-7-fold. I'll be, I'll be avenged that way. Okay, what happens to humanity? Humanity left to itself does not work for justice. It works for vengeance and retaliation. And it's no longer just, you do this, I'll do the same to you. Now it is, you do this, I'll kill you. And, and if you do that, not only will I kill you, I'll kill 70 others out of you, too. That's what humanity does. That's where the human condition flows. And we see indispensable picture of it, an indisputable picture of it, in Genesis 4 and 5 and 6. So why does this common grace from God come into play? God said not everybody's going to be like Noah and bow the knee. The flood will take place is a judgment, but sin will rear its ugly head again immediately in Noah's family. And of course it does. He says, the way we're going to hold in check so that the disaster that you see in Genesis 4, 5, and 6 unfolding won't unfold as a general rule in human society that's fallen in rebellion against me. I'm going to hold it in check to a degree by instituting civil structure, civil government. They will bear the sword. They will coerce a proper sort of behavior. Will the civil government overreact sometimes? Yeah. But what God says is it won't be as bad as it was prior to the institution of this common grace. The way we're going to hold sinful humanity in check isn't to trust in the essential goodness of the human being, which is at the heart of a lot of very foolhardy educational theories. It's, there's not a basic good thing there. I mean, that's the reason Jesus came. You know, what you have is the acceleration of disaster in humanity. Civil authority helps to hold it in place. So despite its failures, all of us can point to dramatic failures of civil authority. Despite civil authority's often violent nature, because we can all point to violent abuses that have occurred under civil authority structure, civil authority, human authority, prevents the much greater disaster that would be there if God had not placed a coercive element into the human condition. Anarchy is the natural state of fallen mankind without government structure. It is anarchy. And even the unsaved, you know, writers, I was thinking of the of the book Animal Farm was a classic example. You know, not out of any biblical belief, but the, the classic picture of that is this utopian picture where, you know, they, 
what happens is it starts out good and then everything becomes almost like an animal farm before you get very far. Because that's the human condition. The utopian writers all understood that. So inevitably, the utopian pictures are always how it all starts and then gets bad as quick as you, as very quickly, whatever good intentions were there get overruled by bad feelings and so forth. That is the nature of the human condition. And the, theologically, the scripture tells us that God operates with a common grace, like letting sunshine come and seasons go. This is a common grace expression of God. I will have a coercive tool that is no longer wielded by the individual filled with vengeance. Instead, it's going to be wielded by uh, a particular structural group who help to make people behave better. Will they behave perfect? Nope. But you won't have Genesis 5 and 6 either to the degree that it's there. And you say, well, I don't know. I'm more optimistic about mankind. Oh, really? Uh, let's look at the present moment. We minister to churches, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Uganda, western Kenya, northern Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, Democratic Republic of Congo on the far east side, in Zambia, but in the other ones I mentioned to you. I can guarantee you there is not a person who knows Christ in any of the churches we support who doesn't have scars from massacres affecting their families. All of them. Uganda, estimates vary. Some of them go as high as two plus million killed in Uganda over the last 30 years. Rwanda, estimates three to five million massacred in the breakdown of civil structure, in the anarchy of those periods. Western Kenya, somewhere in the million plus. Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. It's been a disaster ever since the 60s. Remember the UN secretary being shot down back in the early 60s over Congo as they were trying to bring about some sort of resolution of the civil war that emerged in the Congo following the, the Belgian release of it as a colony. It's still going on. The armies go back and forth. That's what makes it so difficult for Pastor Jules to get in and do something because they go through armed regions, embattled regions, to even get to those places. So here, there are no examples of anarchy working out. All we have are examples of anarchy making things vastly worse than they would be otherwise. Do we have examples of really righteous governments? No, not too many, actually. <laughs> but they're not as bad as the absence of common grace would make anarchy in our world. Think how terrible it would be for you to be living and trying to raise a family in anarchy. No authorities to appeal to. People doing whatever they want to you. Whoever's got the strength and power at that moment, that's what they do. We are commanded by God to not undercut respect for authority. 
not because authorities are always respectful or worthy of respect, but because they're the common grace alternative to a much more disastrous thing, which is the anarchy that reigns outside of that common grace of God, the civil authority. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Another principle, we're obviously not going to finish these verses today, but another principle, he says, being subject to authority is one way for the sojourners and exiles to do good. Remember, one of the reasons God saved us is the witness of good works. In in verse 12 of this chapter, he said, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, in verse 8 and 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, and that we should walk in them. Choosing to be subject to human authority structure is an example of the good work that God is talking about. It's not the only example, but it's an example. It's one of the reflections of it. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself that being subject is doing good because it really helps us, particularly when the behavior of an authority figure is godless and sinful, particularly when the policies of authority structures that may be in place are incorrect and often unbiblical, particularly when it really frustrates us to personally have to obey some sort of regulation that we think is not so good, or maybe God says, remind yourself of these things because I've called you to be good, not to be happy. I want you to be doing good things. And you're going to undercut when I'm trying what is going on rather than helping what is going on. By the way, biblical balance here. Always remember that when a particular law or policy breaks God's law, the situation changes. The command of God for his children then is to choose not to obey that law. Acts chapter 4, where the apostles were said, well, I don't want you proclaiming Christ's name anymore. It's like, well, we're not going to overthrow you as a Sanhedrin. We're not going to obey you either. We're going to talk about Christ because we have higher authority. We're doing all of our submission for the sake of the Lord. And if his command conflicts with your command... Uh, I'll still be submissive. I'm not going to overthrow your, your civil authority, but I'm not going to obey it either. I'm going to obey God, and I'll accept the consequences that come. That's how they put it in Acts 4. You remember, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we can't help but speak of what you called us to speak about. So we're going to keep talking about Jesus, even if you say it's not right and not legal. We're going to do it. He also says here, and I'll end with this, We need to understand that being subject to authority works, as he puts it, to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Silence the ignorance of foolish people. The word silence here, phimo in the Greek, means to muzzle. The implication of it is that as we, with his strength, and there's no way to do it apart from that, seek to be subject to authority structure, God uses that to muzzle the talk of foolish people against God and against his word and against the gospel. In other words, there doesn't mean it does away with it entirely, but it tends to have a muzzling effect. Uh, We tend to silence antagonism to the gospel by our submission. Uh, Does it do it 100%? No, but it has that potential, that, that effect 
sometimes. Last word on this. Our submission helps to foster a peaceful environment because the anarchy is not a peaceful environment. And that's exactly what God calls for us to pray for authorities about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. It says, First of all, then I urge that its supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all in high positions, that we may live a peaceable and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing to God in the sight of our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is no such thing as a peaceful environment in anarchy. Biblically, the two don't coexist. The only way that you can have anything but anarchy is to have authority structure in place. And so that's what you pray for. Now, you pray for God to work in the hearts of the people in authority, of course. You know, and, and even if they're in rebellion against him, their heart of a king is like water in the hands of the Lord. He can move them to make a certain decision. Uh, that decision doesn't save them, but he, they can make that decision. But he says, you pray for this because bound into it, if the civil authority is there, at least there's a chance for peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified, in a fallen world, filled with rebels against God and all of the consequences of such rebellion. So that's the reason that we do it. And somehow, all of that gets linked to the light in the darkness that God is calling us to do. Well, much more to say about this being subject issue. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll continue on looking at verses 13 to 17 to try to see what other principles are coming into play here for us. But brothers and sisters, is Frustrating as authorities can turn out to be, and I'm the first to acknowledge frustration with authority, both authority, individuals in authority, policies in place with authorities, and so forth. God is saying there's something worse, and that's the breakdown of all authority. And so whatever you do in serving me, in seeking to even address wrong policy, don't do it in such a way that you contribute to the breakdown of structure itself because the outcome of that is going to be disastrous for you and for others. Uh, so make sure that you're not fighting against God who's purposely in common grace put in place structure. Change who's in authority, do what you can do, but don't break authority down. Because people are not basically nice. People are not basically good. And if you want proof of that, don't look around for people who smile at you. Look around for people who, if you've done something they think was against them, what their attitude toward you is now. And you will discover benevolence does not rule the day. That's not how people are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this day. Tough verses, hard verses, certainly many implications beyond what we've looked at, but Help us to understand your purpose in the common grace of authority structure to hold in check somewhat with the sword of that authority structure the disastrous rippling effects of personal vengeance and violence in the context of anarchy due to the fallenness of humanity. And help us to understand how 
our witness and our light as sojourners and exiles can have a positive effect cooperating with that very expression of your common grace. So Lord, guide and direct us as we think about these things and reflect them in our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.